Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our critics series, I am joined by my friend Ryan Schinkel for a conversation on David Lynch. We have recently started a series on Lynch for the ACF Movie Podcast, but we have yet to explain some views on Lynch or why he is such an interesting and important American artist. And we hope to do some of that today in a conversation on his 1986 movie, Blue Velvet. Now, Blue Velvet is as conventional a plot as a David Lynch movie is going to be, and as close to what the audience expects as it is possible. Uh, it's two hours of a kid growing up, a young man off to college, becoming a man, and it involves a crime story as well. So that I think is immediately recognizable for audiences, but it somehow makes the movie suddenly seem less shocking. Uh, it was a shock when it appeared. It's a shock today. And so we'll try to balance out these two things, uh, Lynch as a conventional Hollywood movie maker and Lynch as an artist that is strangely shocking. But of course, first of all, uh, Ryan, please introduce yourself to our audience since it is your first time on the podcast and tell us about your work as an editor as well at Athwart Magazine. Well, thank you for the kind intro, Titus. I am an associate editor with Athwart Magazine, um, athwart.org, just think at thwart.org. The name has not been undifficult to pronounce many times with strangers, but we have the one website that uses that word, and so we'll make use of it as we can. We are a small outfit, but healthily growing. Our contributors usually consist of young writers as well as graduate students, though sometimes with the occasional heavier hitter. The ethos is friends having fun conversations, thinking aloud on a subject of mutual and great curiosity. I want to know about something, be a political theory or cultural criticism. Uh, we had some recent essays on history of television by uh, Joe Joyce, for example. We go on lots of different things. Our kind of our kind of network usually consists of Catholics, Notre Dame grads, great books, college graduates, DC yuppies in the conservative world, but sometimes different kinds of unreconstructed Marxists. So it's 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 a hodgepodge uh, or cornucopia. And we're always looking for new contributors. If anyone wants to write anything, send an email, which we can mention at the end. I am actually a longtime listener to this podcast. Actually, I've been waiting to, to call in for five years now. But no, I uh, first came across your podcast because the late Paul Cantor, a mutual mentor and friend of ours, appeared on it talking about, I think, Deadwood at one point or one of those early episodes. And I started listening to it and kept trying to find the right place to listen to the podcast in terms of which app. And uh, I was out studying at St. John's College a few years ago. And going on for long nightly runs would be listening to several different episodes at a time. It introduced me, for example, to the lives of others and to quite a great amount of film. So I definitely want to say that this podcast is one of the best out there on trying to take film and high as well as popular culture seriously from a humanistic perspective. I found rewatching Blue Velvet kind of funny because it brought home my own experience sort of discovering Lynch. One going into David Lynch, one feels like Kyle MacLachlan's character, uh, Jeffrey Beaumont. There's this whole world with all these hidden meanings that you have to continually watch again and again to sort of see what is happening, something uh, hidden. Kyle MacLachlan has the uh, quote, there is uh, something that has always been hidden here. 
uh, and I'm in the middle of a mystery. Well, that's sort of like discovering Lynch. I first got into Lynch around the same time I, I first got into film as something that I seriously liked as a boy. My favorite film uh, when I was 12, I think, was Patton. And I really was a big fan of all kinds of comedy. The Marx Brothers, well, one time I was watching all the movies of Mel Brooks using the DVDs at the local library. And I discovered on Wikipedia, oh, he executive produced this one movie that got a bunch of Oscar nominations. So I watch, I rent, and I begin to watch uh, The Elephant Man, expecting some kind of Mel Brooks comedy. Instead, it is a very elegiac, dark, surrealist film, a historical quasi-fantasy. It was quite a surprise. And so I started watching uh, a couple of Lynch's works, not knowing what the heck I was dealing with. It was like the first time I watched Napoleon Dynamite. I was like, what is this? But like the second or third time, it actually gets a lot funnier. And one starts to eventually sort of have a Stockholm syndrome. Like this is brilliant. Except it's actually also true, which is sort of the meta element in all of Lynch's works, which encountering him is like his characters encountering <laughs> his world. I'll just mention this sort of small little detail. I first got interested in movies as movies. I would read Roger Ebert's column when it was republished in, in the regional newspaper. And then I would go down to an old movie theater, now just recently torn down, and I would watch them, the movie that he wrote about. And I would test whether his column was true or not. One summer, I saw both Melancholia and Tree of Life based on his recommendations. That's when I got into film. But I put off Lynch for a few years. Recently, in the last couple of years, coming back to him and watching his stuff more seriously, the first time I watched Eraserhead, I was like, what is this? This is so strange. The exotic and the macabre thrown to such extremes with great irony at every point and great cruelty that the characters are subjected to, yet at the same time, a really deep moral sincerity at the heart of it. Mel Brooks had the line about Lynch, and I'll sort of conclude with this at this juncture, had the line about Lynch um, that he was a Jimmy Stewart from Mars. And I find that he's always playing with different perspectives involving voyeurism, the, the hardness of Hollywood, the decrepitness at the heart of our culture. But at the same time, he finds within it a very simple faith in human goodness that when one sees it one has to think it has to be sarcastic but uh, it appears again and again it's almost capra-esque so i i think that there's a moral core in all this dreamlike web that he's always producing yeah i think that's right i think he's a big believer in the 50s america he grew up in and at the same time very aware that never far out of sight are very terrible things and he has a strange curiosity that he imparts to his characters to find out what the cause of good and evil is. He seems to suggest that that would be one limitation of suburbia and where he might part ways with the Capra-esque or Jimmy Stewart America. He can't look away from the deeply disturbing stuff and insists on showing that to his audience, which is accordingly a fairly small audience. I think this mix of a moral commitment to an older America and this artistic commitment to the kinds of shocks that were not permissible in artistic works in that America has led Lynch into this terrible and in a way funny predicament that the people who really like Lynch either have a taste for the disturbing things or have a taste for the meandering or confusing or chaotic imaginations. And they are therefore very unlikely to be in love with interpretation or to think of a love of movies as tied up with some kind of rigorous interpretation, something that, say, Paul Cantor would do.
And on the other hand, the people who are most likely to benefit from confronting good and evil in America in David Lynch's manner were going to be, more often than not, Republicans, the middle classes of middle America. They're not going to watch it because it would disturb them. And I'm not sure if this can be fixed or how it can be fixed. Surely David Lynch has built a remarkably successful career and is a famous name for a man whose movies almost by nature can't make money. This is quite an achievement, at least because he's done it for almost 40 years now, or actually for starting with Eraserhead more than 40 years, well into his fifth decade. So he's both a remarkable success and a strange American eccentric. I think this Mel Brooks phrase you quote, the Jimmy Stewart from Mars, makes sense in a number of ways, not just because there's something odd alien about the way he looks at ordinary America. His shots are insistent and probing, I think is the way we would put it in terms of describing the cinematography. But also because when people tend to say the observer from Mars or something like that, they tend to mean that there is an investigative curiosity there, a probing that might appear cruel even. I find there are two different audience reactions that were reported when Blue Velt was first being shown. One was, and this was what Pauline Kael recorded, or actually, let me start with the first one. David Lynch should be shot. And there's this one that Kael uh, cited at the beginning of a review. Maybe I'm sick, but I want to see that again. Blue Velt was actually, we can start talking about this movie specifically. This film was actually a box office success. It spent about $6 million dollars of Dino De Laurenti's money and it made eight million dollars but it had not necessarily critical success in many ways it was but it got a lot of press getting very opposite reactions from people uh, Ebert gave it a one-star review and trashed it on his tv show for reasons we can get into later but at the same time um, many people Richard Brody and others across the board thought even the Christian Science Monitor they cited uh, St. Paul in their review found it to be um, an honest and dreamlike picture. So it drew, and when you watch it today, still draws extreme reactions, often in the same audience member. If you look at his couple different previous movies, Lynch has quite a variety that he was doing. He first did Eraserhead, which is an extremely strange film. It's actually never been out of theater since it first began in the midnight circuit. There was Elephant Man, which was a critical commercial and uh, award-winning success. And then Dune, which was a box office failure and ultimately failed in terms of uh, its execution due to very complicated reasons. So a space fantasy. This was a movie, I think, where Lynch was in Blue Velvet finally honing his own instincts, also his own subject matter, returning to the United States rather than past Britain or 10,000 years in the future in, in Herbert's novel. Instead, he was taking the almost idyllic childhood uh, as a baby boomer, growing up in different parts of the country. He was actually present, for example, when JFK got inaugurated. He was a, a volunteer there, so he saw both Eisenhower and JFK in 1960, and he was present near them. You read his co-autobiography, Room to Dream. It's a really wonderful childhood he grew up in. The 1950s and early 60s is to America what, say, Edwardian era was to England. It was a time before the great disenchantment of the 60s and 70s, a time of the supremacy of our empire um, and uh, great peace and plenty at home. Lynch was actually greatly motivated, somewhat counterintuitively, by 
Reagan's Morning in America campaign advertisement. He saw it and was actually quite influenced by it as a piece of televisual content. It was something that could evoke that kind of childhood, but at the same time confront the chaos that had happened since that childhood. If you w watch the film specifically, it combines the technology from the 20s and 30s through the 50s and 60s. The fashion and the cars are generally the 70s and definitely the 80s. But it is the references, the language, it is in a pastiche of about 60, 70 years of American life into one film. It's not trying to pigeonhole itself into one era, but it's trying to sort of combine them into sort of one general dream. I mean, that's the thing I think what Lynch does is that when you're entering his stuff, you're entering a dream world where something seems very much what it is in that moment, but then at next moment, next scene quickly changes into something else. So we can talk about the beginning. If you want to, we can start by getting the specifics of the film. The film Blue Velvet opens with this almost Capper-esque picture of the small American town. You have uh, pictures of fire truck, kids playing. It is an idyllic village. Then you have an old man mowing his lawn. This turns out to be the father of this Vomont family. And as he's mowing his lawn, he has a stroke or a heart attack and falls to the ground. Don't worry, he doesn't die. But as he falls to the ground, the camera then in one single, brilliant single shot, moves slowly along the grass and goes deeper and deeper and deeper until it goes into the dirt underneath the grass. And then there's all kinds of insects and bugs all over the place. I was recently mowing my lawn and I, I don't think there are that many bugs on every single spot I was standing. So again, this is a world in which you have to, I, I wouldn't say suspend disbelief, rather you have to take a leap of faith. And when you see these bugs, you're seeing underneath or within this realm of sort of American hyper-reality is this decrepitude, the macabre, the exotic, the vitiations of convention, the violations of nature that come out of the shadows at night. And that's what we see with the characters in the film. Now, if you want to sort of give a little summary of plot, the father, the man who falls to the ground uh, and goes into the hospital, that's Mr. Beaumont. His son uh, is the main character, Jeffrey Beaumont, played by Lynch's longtime actor, Kyle MacLachlan. Kyle MacLachlan, you will know from Lynch's third film, Dune, as well as playing the main detective character in Twin Peaks for over its 25 years or its three seasons. Beaumont is a college student who's just come back to Lumberton, North Carolina, where the film's located. And at one point, he's walking out in some forestry close to his house, and he finds a human ear that has been severed. He picks it up and takes it to the local police department. He goes with the main detective back to the spot where he found it, and thus begins a mystery of whose ear this was and all the people connected to it. I will mention at this juncture a quote from David Foster Wallace. He had an essay in the 90s where he said someone like Tarantino in Reservoir Dogs would make a movie in which he shows a human ear gets severed, but Lynch will make an entire movie about a severed ear. This is sort of what Lynch does. He will take a small little detail that's strange and then spin from it this very long and complicated thread. The idea of the ear sort of came to him, actually, as many of his ideas did in an actual dream. He had this idea for him for a long time, since the early 70s, of just walking in a field and just finding his ear. What's the story behind it? How did it get here? Whose ear was it? Who cut it off? Why did they cut it off? What's the situation that brought this about, right? So one small detail, and Lynch will unpack everything from it. That's kind of where we can begin.
yeah, I think it's generally true of wonderful movies that the introduction really sets up much more than you first realize. It's the sorts of things that you learn more and more about as you watch the movie again and again. But as to mood, indeed, Blue Velvet's opening montage is somewhere in between Reagan ads and the Black Hole Sun Soundgarden video. These are pictures of 50s America, of Americana, that you wonder at. Could this have been real? Could this be intended honestly? Is this some kind of mockery? But of course, there is a kind of suspension of judgment there. It's as though this is absolutely America. It has a kind of power, the society, that renders it beyond judgment. This is what America is like, and you, you have to deal with it. You can't really transform America. And of course, in this case, it's especially important since the ending also is almost the same montage, but with a suggestion that, so to speak, life goes on, begins with this stroke, it looks like, and ends with a kid restored to his mother. So that's all American as Lynch will get. But then, as you said, there is a lot to the odd power of Lynch to attract attention to weird goings on to things that may seem happenstance or absurd, and then show that they are not, in fact, absurd, that they make storytelling sense because they make sense of American experience in a way in which we are not particularly willing to do ourselves. So the storytellers, the poets, the filmmakers have to do it for us. And to some extent, uh, the audience is with him. People will follow along, and uh, that's some kind of legitimacy. It's almost like voting. People do admit there's something to what Lynch is saying, although he seems to be a candidate doomed to lose. But so this introduction shows you our budding hero, Kyle McLachlan. He's back from school because he has to help at the hardware store because his father has suffered this stroke and is debilitated for the duration of the movie, as it turns out. It's a confrontation of the young man with his home. He later says, you know, all my friends are gone. Everybody's moved on since graduation. He has an odd attitude to the old high school, to his household, even for that reason. He's out of place. And in a way, he's looking for trouble. He perhaps has a willingness to look at this side of suburbia that he hadn't had before now that he has returned, but has been forced to return. But as the story transforms, he turns out to be the local Ronald Reagan, indeed. The man who has to save suburbia, who has to save the middle classes of America, who has to save an entire moral order at uh, some risk to himself. And it's also a story of him growing up. There is something in that opening scene where the character we learn is his father, just straining to get this hose out of a patch of flowers so that he can move on with his mowing of the lawn. And then he has a stroke and he collapses and you see the bugs down there. That's fundamentally real. You know, there are bugs everywhere. The biomass of the insects is this sort of enormous thing that science will tell you just overpowers any human imagination. But of course, we don't see it because we cannot really experience that. Science will tell you these things, but you know it's next to impossible to make sense of them. But he forces you to see that. And in a way, it connects to something as simple as a stroke. You don't see it coming. And it makes the difference between life and death. And it's not just how fragile humans are, it's how limited our knowledge is. And these are different sorts of things. Your moral concern and your uncertainty could turn in a moral or an intellectual direction, you could say, according to taste. But um, but this is the sort of thing that allows Lynch to get at the depths 
and therefore also the moral resources of America. In a way, the problem with suburban America is that it makes victory seem too easy, and therefore it deprives young men of any opportunity to become men in the first place. And I think that's why Jeffrey Beaumont, this young man, I guess, from college, has to return to town and be involved in this murder mystery, as it turns out, and the drug mystery and and worse things afoot, the evils hidden in a small town, the small town of Lumberton, North Carolina. Oddly specific, but because nobody's ever heard of it. But, you know, it's a real place. (laughs) It's America. So he has to learn about good and evil in a way he hadn't before. And it seems like that's wrong. There's something wrong with an America that doesn't allow young men or require of them to learn serious things. It's maybe too perfect and too powerful. And of course, that's connected with the fact that his father is out of commission for the duration, although, as you say, he survives his stroke. Only with the father out of the picture can Jeffrey become an adult. I suppose that's what he thought. That's what maybe everybody thought would happen once he goes away from the family off to college, off to work, a career, somewhere in America, success, hopefully, whatever the future may hold in store. It's therefore very unusual of Lynch to say, no, the the young man should return home and become a man there, go through these dangerous experiences there where everything is familiar to him and yet contains unsuspected evils. As of the time of speaking, the latest episode you had was on Fight Club, and that is a film that is all about the man facing his own shadow. But in the film, spoiler alert, everything is contained within oneself. In Blue Velvet, you have that same kind of the thin line between good and evil and the shifting or more like the, the sort of the shadow between the two and the shiftingness of between one and the other and one and the same. To get into some of those actual experiences that Jeffrey Beaumont must face specifically, we soon find that the ear belongs to a man who is a husband of a woman named Dorothy Valens, played by Ingrid Bergman's daughter, Isabella Rosalini, who was also starting at this time Lynch's new partner every five to ten years. He falls in love with someone else, and this was the person at that time. And throughout the film is a series of sort of Girardian love triangles of mimetic desire that I think would be helpful to sort of look at. The father is specifically out of the picture, but the father is also quite present. It's like in Peter Pan, once you leave Earth, the father figure becomes Captain Hook, right? So the father figure here is sort of Frank Booth, but also Lynch. So this story is bringing to the fore tropes that exist in the subconscious, both Freudian, Jungian, things that exist in dreams. So Lynch, for example, is when he's writing the script based Kyle McLaughlin's character, on his own father, on someone who was studying science and became a research scientist for the uh, National Park Service. But he was, well, he's basing on his father, Kyle McLaughlin, was basing it on Lynch. His mannerism, the way he speaks with these sort of these weird phrases and sentences. And his character is falling in love with Rosalini's character, Rosalini, also the girlfriend of Lynch. So that mirrors him and his relationship, the love triangle with him and Frank Booth and Rosalina's character. You'll notice that her character is named Dorothy, which evokes, most clearly, Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz was, and there was a recent documentary actually about this, about Lynch and Oz. Wizard of Oz is an absolute obsession throughout his story, but it's basically your other character in Lynch's 97 film, Lost High, was called Alice. So it's always someone is going into fairyland, someone's going into Oz, someone's going into Wonderland. You're going into a place 
that if you think of Wonderland, it's just, you know, down. It's just, you know, one rabbit hole away. Oz, likewise, you have all the same characters, you have all the same people, but it's refracted into this dream world where there's some continuity of logic, but there are so many, I wouldn't say gaps or holes, but there are so many little bits and pieces that seem like a half-formed sort of symphony, all sort of thrown together, but they actually have an intuitive feel uniting them. Lynch does have an intellectual deliberateness to his films, but he usually kind of hides it, instead intending to sort of more explicitly reveal how he intuitively gathers things. So if, let me mention this. If you look at a film like Kubrick, for example, everything you're looking at on the screen is entirely of his own design. There's nothing there that happens by happenstance or accident. Lynch, however, is like, well, I guess we're behind this diner. Might as well film it here. It's like, you know, some extra accidentally appears in a small shot in Twin Peaks, and then he becomes Ba, the great villain of the series, right? So he will take whatever he has in front of him, and he will serendipitously use it. This was key to how he makes his films, because he realized after Dune, if he was spending less money, he had more creative freedom. So spending only $6 million instead of $40 million, he can construct the world as he pleases using whatever materials are in front of him. What he does have in front of him is Kyle MacLachlan looking through town, trying to observe the apartment of Dorothy Valens. And for the first, I would say, 45 minutes of the film, maybe the first third of it, it doesn't seem like there is much going on. He pretends to be a fumigator or a bug exterminator, goes into her apartment just to be able to access it so he can still a key so he can get back in there later that night. But he is, at this point, just a voyeur, almost willing this mystery into existence. He, like us, the viewer, we don't see actually much happening in terms of the hidden spaces yet. We don't see the big underworld that takes place here. But as he sort of going into it, it's almost by coincidence, oh, it's actually here. You know, I've imagined this in my head, but it's not just that I'm paranoid, it's that they're also out to get me. So what we find is that Dorothy Valens is the, for lack of a better word, uh, sex slave of Frank Booth, played by the deliciously despicable Dennis Hopper. Hopper at this time might be worth mentioning. He had been in rehab, was off drugs, but hadn't fully come back into Hollywood. I don't know if he had started Hoosiers yet or not, but he did make the film Out of the Blue, where he also plays a somewhat villainous father figure. In this Blue Velvet, he is just much more explicit. He would later sort of be typecasted in that kind of role for the next 20 years of his life, but always to great effect, excluding, I don't know, Super Mario Brothers. Frank Booth is the local heavy in Lumberton, and he is trying to orchestrate a major drug deal and at the same time trying to kill off all his partners while doing that. In his operation, he always dresses up as this well-groomed man. And we start seeing a parallel between Jeffrey himself being disguised in order to try and operate throughout town to find out this mystery about these people and then as an imitation of Frank Booth. So we start seeing these more parallels similar to between Lynch and McLaughlin. We also see it between Jeffrey and Frank. We also have sort of another love triangle is with Laura Dern's character, Sandy Williams. She plays the daughter of Detective Williams, who is the one good father figure that Jeffrey has in this film. Detective Williams is the one Jeffrey first sees to report the ear. She is older high schooler, rather naive and but also innocent. And there's a distinction that I think that the film makes. She says to Kyle at one point when they're talking together in a diner about breaking into Dorothy's apartment, I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. Now, the irony is that she thinks those are two different things, 
right? Lynch, I don't think we can say that Lynch is trying to say that the, both are the same thing. We watched in the movie is a perversion in the same way a detective is learning. it. These two are different things, but one person can be doing both at the same time. So one person like her character can be naive about the world, but she can also be innocent, innocent in the sense of a core moral sincerity. She has this one speech when Jeffrey learns about Frank Booth's violence and actually he witnesses from the closet the rape that he uh, commits of Dorothy Valens, having her son and her earless husband held hostage in order to get what he wants. Jeffrey watches this and is aghast by it, by the evil in the world. And he confesses to her in the car at one point that almost kind of also naive statement and look on his face. You know, how can there be such people in the world? The contrast between that and the scene we just witnessed, which is a very violent, extremely tough scene to watch, is, is striking. But what's also striking is Laura Dern's reply that she, she had a dream about how there was all this darkness in the world, but that then these robins came in and the robins brought with them all this light. And it's basically the robin is a traditional Christian symbol. It's a symbol of God's love in the world. And that's what the film is simplistically striking. And we get that reference made more explicit because they are parked in front of a church while she is speaking. And you actually hear church organ music from a Bada Lamenti's soundtrack kicking in. Now, is Lynch similar with the beginning of the film where we have this morning in America, boomer nostalgia paraded before us? Is Lynch saying that this sincerity is meant to be mocked, that this is just purely ironic. I don't think so. I think this goes beyond that. He is at one point being ironic about it, but it's the same way that he's putting the voyeurism in front of us. He will use different perspectives without adopting one completely and usually trying to find or hint at some deeper synthesis between the two. And so in some, we have these two different love triangles. And as Kyle learns about this world and eventually encounters Frank Booth, he also actually starts leading up to that it kind of imitating him. He develops a psychosexual relationship with Dorothy Valens that involves, it becomes rather sadomasochistic. Now he's always aggrieved by that, but as they begin their love affair, how much he is enjoying this, how much he's actually implicitly imitating Frank Booth is what kind of continues to shock him. So his shock at Frank Booth is also a shock at the potential in himself to partake in violence and to be vile. At a certain point, when you, you know, in Fight Club, Edward Norton realizes, oh, I, I am Tyler Durden, right? Tyler Durden is in me. Well, Kyle is realizing how much Frank Booth is or is not in him, how much he's adopting this or imitating this, and how much is like, no, I am not that. I'm going to confront the evil and I'm going to face it. So I think I think that that's sort of the questions the film's posing. Yeah, I think uh, you've outlined a number of the moral characters and the moral options available to Americans. They range from middle-class women whose experience of evil seems to be simply, on the one hand, watching on TV movies, crime movies, some kind of suspense picture, or on the other hand, rumors about what side of town not to go into, which is, of course, exactly where young Jeffrey, Cal McLachlan's character, wants to go to see for himself. Then on the other end of that spectrum, there is this Frank character who is, as we say nowadays, a psychopath. But I think in the classic parlance, we would have called him a tyrant, a man who is utterly enslaved to his desires and wants to enslave everybody else to them also, and who is making remarkable political play, so to speak, to become the hidden king of Lumberton. He's trying to do a drug deal, but also murder his partners in the bargain, since he can have no equals. And this means also corrupting cops and murdering them. So 
this is not just a guy breaking the law. There's a suggestion there of a greater ambition or at any rate of these, uh, the terrible consequences that follow from this man's unhinged desires. Of course, Lynch forces us to watch all of these evil deeds, and therefore he cannot side with the ordinary decent women of Lumberton. But you could say he would side instead with the men who want to protect them. And accordingly, among the younger, the lovely Laura Dern character, Sandy, stays for the most part out of trouble. She has a connection to the trouble and feels morally involved for gossiping, essentially. And in that sense, she's like the other women, but more active, a bit more daring. And her innocence is spared for the most part, certainly with respect to violence. There's only one moment when violence is about to erupt in her midst. Her old boyfriend is trying to beat up this new boyfriend, Jeffrey. The high school boys of America turn out to be violent, not just on the gridiron, but might also gang up on a guy and kick his ass to avenge unrequited love. Unrequited love, of course, is a very important thing. We learn about it from Hamlet's famous soliloquy. To have your affection spurned is as terrible as the most terrible injustice. And as in Hamlet, in Blue Velvet, it also gets its due. As you suggested, there is quite a bit of jealousy, erotic jealousy, involved in the goings-on in the story. But Sandy is largely spared violence and only has to face something regarding shame. And that, you know, is much easier to defend morally. Strangely enough, Lynch comes down on the side of the sexual modesty of that America, even while, in a way, uh, violating its moral strictures with respect to public art. And I think you can understand some of that if you look at what you outlined of this strange character of Jeffrey Beaumont, who moves between the nice suburbia and the very seedy side of town, appoints himself detective. You know, he has uh, the detective Williams for a father figure, but he rejects that authority and acts on his own cognizance, driven by he doesn't understand exactly what, because America is a nation of laws and the nation of laws comes with all of these institutions of law enforcement. And that means you don't take the law in your own hands. In short, you have to be what David Lynch makes you, a powerless bystander. But the young man obviously is not satisfied to be a powerless bystander, and therefore he risks his life and his wits by trying to do what the, by right the detectives are supposed to do. And that strange emancipation, that strange act of independence, which is, makes him manlier than you would think the young Cal McLachlan would really inspire people as being, that puts him strangely close to these dangerous men who are also lawbreakers, if, of course, of a different kind. And if you look at the transformation in Kyle McLachlan's character, he sees this woman stripping and then she tries to rape him, which turns out to be because she's been treated that way. But then she has him hide and he ends up witnessing her rape. And this makes him miserable, but doesn't really push him over the edge. Now, there is a later scene when he's taken for a joyride, at which at some point Frank kisses him and has his men hold him as he beats the daylights out of him. That's the thing that teaches Jeffrey to regret his own violence to this deeply damaged woman played by Isabella Rossellini. And that makes sense if you think about it. Seeing the woman victimized 
is not entirely altogether different from what you hear in gossip or seeing people on TV in fearful movies, in suspense, in thrillers, detective stories, crime capers, etc. Granted, there's a difference between reality and fiction, but it's not happening to you. It is only when he himself becomes a victim that he puts himself in the woman's situation. I think that's part of becoming an adult, becoming morally serious, understanding something about suffering and the ways in which it might be irreversible, for example. That is to say, part of the problem with America is American success. Successful Americans know nothing about injustice from experience. Maybe this is why the young Americans are so inclined to fantasies of injustice and fighting injustice. They have none of the experience and therefore they are unserious and are probably going to pursue those fantasies into lives of deep moral unseriousness, which is called activism and whatnot. It's only when he becomes a victim that he takes things that he himself has engaged in by way of violence seriously. That's not perhaps an absolute limit on on human judgment. After all, David Lynch understands this and we can understand it. But I think it is generally the case that this is a problem. This is, I think, the explanation for why America is the way he depicts it, that you can have horrifying crime in some places and at the edge of the neighborhood, Everything is nice, peaceful, even beyond police. It's above policing. People are just nice. These things happen because of the incredible limits of experience. You can go from the small houses off to Lincoln Avenue there to the block building and therefore from the rural to the urban. And all of a sudden you've gone from, so to speak, conservative to liberal America And things are mighty, mighty different. There is the beauty of the arts there. The deeply damaged woman, Dorothy, is also a very attractive chanteuse. She sings all of these blue songs, like Blue Velvet, of course. But there is also the horror that comes with another kind of liberty, with lawlessness, with the violence, the drugs, and so forth. And the thing is, you know, it's also part of the transition America made. I think, to some extent, David Lynch says, wouldn't it be better if we had a lot more Jeffrey Beaumonts and a lot of fewer of these other people who also involved themselves in the strange love affairs or joyrides or drugs and come out much the worse for it for themselves and everybody else. It's, I think, a movie that's meant to defend the moral innocence of Sandy and to defend the the, the social solidity of middle-class America, but also to point out that it is much less stable than it seems because at the outskirts of the nice areas, there are deeply dangerous things that follow from the desire for freedom, that is to say, to have what you want, and therefore to discover yourself. Jeffrey doesn't really know who he is, and he doesn't learn more of who he is by unraveling this mystery, really. It's by facing evil and eventually becoming a killer. In the most crass way, it's useful to look at where a plot begins and where it ends. And this one begins with a young man facing the fact that his father is mortal and crippled, and he sees him in hospital. The father can't even speak. He's impotent, powerless possibly going to die, but the doctors hope not. And at the end, the same young man kills somebody who obviously had it coming, and he obviously does it in self-defense. But the point is, he acts. He is not powerless. Without knowing something about fear of death, I don't think you can understand why the young man would kill somebody. Heroism begins with a confrontation over the fear of death, right? That's as old as Gilgamesh. But in confronting it and recognizing your own mortality, you realize the weight that the means by which you deal out justice 
what that actually implies and that what that implies in you every time you know the hero kills the bad guy it's an implicit recognition that he himself shall also die right every roman conquest the slave whispers into your ear and the triumph remember thou art mortal but when you face the memento mortal, when you face that in front of you, when you face the evil in front of you, it sobers a protagonist and it makes him realize what he must do in the community and what he must do to try and achieve the common good for the time he has left. I wonder, to sort of pick up on what you're saying, you know, the, the way Lynch is weaving together so many different decades of 20th century America, it reminds me a bit of Alistair McIntyre's point about how one specific era and place has a moral drama in which there are known villains and heroes there are stock characters it is a general drama that is unified almost like spenglerian sort of unity to it that tethers the community together someone like frank booth is a recognizable role a small town thug who wants to make it bigger and is willing to take out people corrupt policemen and himself takes others captive and is also captivating in his own right frank booth is monstrous but he is also hard to pin down and he is in his own sort of brutal way, charismatic, but he's also very sentimental, extremely so. We first see him at the club where Rosalini is singing and he is crying at the singing of Blue Velvet. The way you sort of put it about there's more Beaumonts in the world, I think the, the, a key sort of trope in 1980s, I think, for instance, 1980s horror, it's always small town authorities don't believe what's going on or they're not quick enough to handle it. The National Guard only show up, you know, when the monster is destroyed, but you yourself have to go and defeat the monster. You have to do it yourself, right? And usually the, the girl who you're in love with, her father is, you know, some scientist or something, or even a detective and isn't paying attention or doesn't know enough. And you are the one who has to take action. That I think is very operative here. Frank Booth is the horror monster where, you know, if there was a sequel to this film, they would bring Frank Booth back, right? And eventually in a franchise, Frank Booth would become the hero of the genre. Thankfully, there is no sequel because Frank Booth is <laughs> truly is monstrous. But the way Jeffrey has to take action, I think there's a very key parallel to another 80s erotic thriller, Dressed to Kill, that you did previously in the series. You have in Dressed to Kill, the main character, the mother is murdered. And then the son has to act on the behalf of this destroyed woman with another girl, younger woman, who's his potential love interest sort of thrown into the mix. So he has to try and defend one and save the other while taking on some foreign creature. And there's also a detective who is adept and is on the hunt, but isn't quick enough to the draw. I think that's what we get here with Blue Velvet. Jeffrey Beaumont, specifically the key parallel is his use of technology, right? The son in Dressed to Kill is using his skills at computer and all kinds of media to track what happened at the murder and who the killer might have been and use his devices specifically to outsmart his opponents. Jeffrey is tracking Booth's disguised as a well-groomed man through stakeouts, through his use of cameras that he's devised. And then at the end, he doesn't defeat Frank Booth by mano on mano or a big shootout. He does it by outwitting him using technology. Frank Booth has a police radio. Jeffrey knows that. And so he speaks on the police radio that he's in a different room than he is actually in. And so then he hides, waits for him to come in. And then Frank Booth realizes he's not there. That's when Jeffrey strikes, hidden in the closet as he was before. Now, so we see all these callbacks to scenes earlier in which Jeffrey was in the closet watching things happening. But this time he's taking action. He's preventing Frank Booth from committing any more deviancy. Now, how did he get there, right? There's a moment where he first meets Frank Booth face to face. He's having this affair with Rosalini. 
And what's portrayed is it's it's not as sadomasochistic as probably some things today, but it's still a bit shocking. And he feels conflicted over it. But Frank Booth arrives at the apartment and sees Jeffrey and Rosalini calls him, oh, this is just a neighbor. So Booth keeps referring to Jeffrey as neighbor throughout the course of the film and this night joyride they take out together with him and his gang. And the way the word neighbor is used keeps changing over the course of it, right? So there's this kind of ironic play on loving thy neighbor. (laughs) He says to her at one point, don't be a good neighbor to her. I'll send you a love letter. And when you get one from me, you're dead. There's a few expletives thrown into the mix that is extremely well delivered by Dennis Hopper's portrayed madness. The shock that comes at him where he gets beaten up and realizes there are what the world he has delved into is beyond his control. He cannot manage the situation with the old way of looking at the world. You know, this college student who is just learning about this place and is exploring sex, exploring love, trying to solve mysteries without any skin in the game, without personal involvement, that there are real lives at stake and he is not morally serious enough to be up to the job. But when he's taken out, he's picked up by Booth and they go out to a local hideout. It's almost like a Club Silencio moment from your episode with Soa Bermari about Mulholland Drive, where they're singing a Roy Arbson song in dreams. And there's a moment where the, a man is singing to the song, mouthing the words, but he himself is not actually singing it, right? So there's this play that Lynch loves to do between reflection of the medium of the film and the nature of the medium and its artificiality, the illusion that's put forward. But what Jeffrey is having to learn is that What's happening isn't an illusion. It's not a dream that there are lives at stake. A child is held hostage. A woman is held in servitude. And he cannot be just pleasing himself. He must actually try and put himself at risk to make sacrifice of himself for some larger good at stake. So that is the turn that happens. And I think we can mention specifically the shock that happens the night that the climax of the film takes place. Uh, It begins with him going out for a dance with Laura Dern. And as they come back, they're met by her old boyfriend and his high school gang. But the high schoolers themselves stop their beating up of Jeffrey and become really shocked by a naked Isabella Rosalini. This is the thing that set up Roger Ebert against Lynch for like 15 years was this scene. And it is still very shocking. And Laura Dern, she finally realizes the extent of the affair between Jeffrey and Dorothy. He, at that point, is kind of ended the affair is kind of over and he realizes that after getting his butt kicked by booth but the shock of it is where he realized the extent to which he has involved himself and how much it is even worsened the situation of rosalini's sanity so it's at that moment where the film is kind of leaving it open he doesn't have to be the hero in the situation this can just be a film where like dennis hopper's out of the blue where it just spirals and spirals and further violence and madness and there is no happy ending it's not the reagan america it's just a bunch of the insects in the ground and that is where the difference that is made is jeffrey's own moral growth at the end of the film Before the final confrontation with Booth, he doesn't know that Booth is coming up back to Rosalini's apartment. And he thinking that I'm going to hunt down and get Booth myself, he decides standing in the doorway to her apartment, he says, I'm going to let them catch you, as in the police. The police had just busted Booth's operation and he's on the run as the well-groomed man. Him deciding that I'm not going to pursue this mystery anymore. I'm done with the voyeurism. I am going to stop looking at the insects. I'm just going to mow the lawn. We might think, wait, the hero not taking action? How is that moral growth? Isn't that just cowardice? But I think in that situation, it shows a maturity that he knows he's over his head. 
And a good man, a just man, does not go out seeking risks for their own sake continuously. One does it because there is some good at stake, right? He's learning, in other words, wisdom and prudence about when and how to do these things. But when the situation is forced upon him and he must act, that's when he applies the wits and the skills that he has been learning as this voyeuristic detective throughout the film. So he knows that when he must put skin in the game because necessity and justice force it upon him. Yeah, I think that the oddity about Lynch is this insistence that maybe this American character can see a man through. Maybe he can make the necessary adjustments, learn some lessons from his suffering and from his moral culpability and act accordingly. As you said, this moment when the naked Isabella Rossellini is seen on his lawn, it transforms in a way what's happening, what's been happening in suburbia. First of all, the scene itself. This high school kid, he's jealous of this kid who's just finished high school. He's going to try and fight him. Maybe he can kick his ass. He's a football player. Maybe he's got the strength. But there's something very petty about that. And then when this woman who's suffering because of love is so much more terrifying shows up, it puts in perspective how, in a way, small conflicts in suburbia can be. And all of a sudden, these high school kids are scared of what they're seeing. And the young boyfriend who wants to fight ends up saying, I'm sorry, man, I'm sorry. He realizes that he's way out of his depth here. And indeed he is, but in a way, so is Jeffrey. Because up till now, although he is turned around to doing the right thing by way of justice, he neglected one essential issue. What is going to happen to the victim? And this is the part where you could say the very Christian suggestions you brought out earlier from the scene in front of the church at night really show their consequences. They have to take this crazy lady who is naked and looks beaten up and take her into a suburban home, his girlfriend's home, uh, she's Sandy, and her mother comes and they have to put clothes on her to cover her nakedness and get an ambulance and try to fix this problem. They have to allow these horrors that happen into the middle of suburbia. And that is the Christian issue. It's not enough to kill Frank Booth. You also have to save his victims. You have to somehow save this woman and and make her believe that she is still welcome among civilized human beings, although she has been enslaved and abused. Without that, you don't get to the scene at the end where the crazy woman is restored to her child to some life, which is only possible after all because of this great belief in redeeming love. There's a moment of despair when Jeffrey hears Dorothy over the phone, despairing that her son, Donnie, doesn't love her anymore or has been poisoned against her by his abductors. That would be, you could say, the worst that could happen to this woman. But instead... Jeffrey learns that it's not enough for him to go out of his ordinary way of life and into this terrible place where injustice is the rule, but he has to bring the victim of injustice with him. It's not enough to think that he shouldn't further her abuse by giving into his desires. He has to think of sacrificing his reputation and possibly his courting of the young Sandy for the sake of saving this woman. And there, indeed, you see this moral transformation and the importance of the Christian core of American society. Everybody understands spontaneously what is expected of them. 
Jeffrey is not in charge or a preacher in that situation. Everybody just gets it. They have to take care of, as it turns out, the widow and the orphan, right? The story is literally about saving the widow and the orphan. It's a moral drama, right? In which there's a known cast of characters. It's that sort of McIntyrean scheme. And this is the moral grammar and the roles that are a part of it. Is Kyle going to be the villain, which the voyeurism goes in that direction? Or is he going to be the hero, which is the man seeking justice, who acts manly on behalf of the oppressed, right? This is back to the, the Fight Club discussion that young men must come into the world and come into their own. They must see their own father's decline and they must see authorities weaken because they themselves must take up the task of human generation. They must themselves be the father protecting his family and protecting those who have no fathers, the widows and the orphans. In in this way, the film is sort of implying, I think a kind of synthesis, in fact, perhaps somewhat counterintuitively between nature and grace kind of the play is kind of a technology like if i can mention when rosalini's naked it reminded me of this quote if i may from jacob klein nature has its counterpart in the multidimensionality of human rituals beneath the garbs of nature and of ritual lie hidden we may well suspect the features of nakedness caution then is needed whenever we invoke nature talk about nature deal with nature the nakedness of things might wreck our schemes right you take away convention rosalina's character right you take away the clothing and you unveil nature and what do you see but it's something that shocks you you take away the grass and you see the biocore of uh, the mass of insects and bugs all over the place right nature for human society has to be clothed it has to be somewhat veiled right i mean even god when he dwells with us is also tabernacled right these things need veils this is the incense because too much would you know like the jews before yahweh would destroy them they need that mediation and so jeffrey has gone deeper and deeper into the mystery unveiling things disclosing things and it's finally shocked him and it's hurt him but it's also transformed him so he comes out of oz a little soberer and wiser so then where is the interplay so he himself outwitted he discovered the schemes informed detective williams and outwitted and finally beat booth using technology right using this is sort of, you think, mid-century and middle American know-how about using gadgets and devices in front of you, sort of do it yourself, build something in your garage. In the film, the other forms of media we see are when his aunts are watching detective stories, noir dramas, guys, detective police fighting the mob, private detectives, you see shows on their television screen. Those stories are the American version of sort of the knights fighting the dragon. It happens in an industrialized technological society. These things are what veil nature and what we use to fight what is unnatural. And this is seen most clearly, I think, in the ending. So the film begins with this morning in America sort of scene, and it ends with that. So right when he has killed Frank Booth, both Laura Dern and her character's father walk in. Detective Williams says, Jeffrey is over. And then immediately the film goes from night to day, where it's Williams's family and Laura Dern's family and Jeffrey's family in the same house together. His father is healthy. Sort of nature is healed. Kingdom has been restored. The monster is slain and everything seems well and happy. They're out having a cookout. They're about to have dinner. And they see before them a robin holding an insect in its beak. Now, this shot is the final shot of the film. So it's fulfilling Laura Dern's sort of dream of grace perfecting nature. But notice something very carefully there when you watch the film. You can see the strings that are on the robin. They're deliberately visible. The insect in its beak is a live insect when they're showing that. That robin, however, 
is dead. You cannot, because the robin is a protected animal, you, you're not really allowed to capture one or let alone kill one to be used. They had brought in a live robin, but it was sad. It was barely alive. And as Lynch said, a robin cannot be caged. But when they were filming, this is Lynch as a filmmaker being able to make do with whatever he has. A robin hit the window of a school bus when it was driving. Local taxidermist got it and they had been out on the lookout for some kind of bird that could be used. And they realized there's this dead robin that the taxidermist has. They acquire it and they construct it to be doing the motions that it presents. But when you see the strings that are showing it, it's trying to say that the artifice that has made this ending possible, that this world possible, is part and parcel of that way of life and of this sort of dream of American power. The technology is the way that this perfection of nature is manifested. And so we see the artifice, we know it's there, we're meant to sort of take a leap of faith in its justice and its legitimacy, even if we know that it is not necessarily natural, that it is man-made and man-reinforced. So I think I think the film is sort of suggesting a synthesis or taking a seriousness that, yes, there's this artifice here, but be careful when you peel it back because you don't know what's out there and you also don't know what's in here, specifically, you know, what's 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 behind the ear that you've taken off and what's inside that head. Anyway, that's yeah, I think it's the nuance of the film. I think the since the movie focuses so much on the moral experience of a young man, it is indeed all about the dangers of acquiring experience. This does not necessarily work out. In fact, to the extent to which the movie has an interest and such movies have an interest, it is because we suspect that most of the time it doesn't work out. This would not be an admirable figure if it were a commonplace figure. And uh, therefore, there is a certain awareness of the weakness, the moral weakness involved in American power. I don't think there's any other basis on which you could justify showing all the ugly things in the story. I think the movie is more explicit than other David Lynch movies that if you're going to show ugly truths, you had better have a damn good reason. But I think that's fairly generally uh, Lynch's view. But in this case, uh, he makes more of an effort to show how danger and ugliness are necessary to the growth of a man and to really becoming an adult as opposed to just being called an adult. That makes the movie harder to swallow than the repulsive things in the movie because it suggests many respectable people, respectable because they're professional, they are law-abiding, maybe they raise a family, aren't really adults and they certainly aren't men because everybody knows that faced with evil, they would collapse. There would otherwise be no prize to be won by heroes. There would be no admiration, that is. That weakness has all sorts of other consequences. Again, it's a story about a young man acquiring experience. It also shows he could become corrupt. He is not above suspicion. (laughs) Kyle MacLachlan is very likable, but part of Lynch's attraction to him as an actor has to do with the fact that he seems a little off. Like he never quite became a star in America. He is Lynch's vision of what the movie star is, but it's not what America believes in. It could go another way. It is inherently dangerous business, and it has to do with a certain weakness, a certain openness to corruption. As you said, the work of uh, doing justice invariably means confronting injustice, and that might involve something of a taste for it. There's a parallel that could be made... Um 
with uh, Twin Peaks, you had an episode six years ago with James Poulos, one of the early ones on the series. And I think it is no coincidence that McLaughlin is also playing a voyeuristic detective in that town. And in that film, it's, you know, it's more or less like someone like Lauren Dern's character would have been murdered, but also she would have been a Rosalini, a Dorothy character in her own right, in terms of this mix of both a uh, masochistic relationship with men, but also being this innocent, morally upright person, both at the same time. But in that story, you know, if, if we were continuing this story, there's there's local heavies like Booth that are in the film, but they are more incidental to the story, right? If this film was to continue and Jeffrey was to be continue unraveling, what are all these mysteries that are connected to Frank Booth? Where did he come from? Who were his backers, right? What's, what's going on here? And we were to draw it out into serial form at a certain point the difference between the perversion and the detective work or the voyeurism and the actual mystery solving it almost becomes impossible to distinguish between the two mclaughlin's character in twin peaks he could solve the murder probably relatively quickly but it seems like he likes you know using tibetan methods to interpret dreams or something because he likes being in that town and he likes the mystery to continue Kyle mclaughlin's character when he's in twin peaks this other you know american small town doesn't want the mystery to end. Now, this is Twin Peaks where it's post the 60s and 70s, right? It's this it's post-sexual revolution. It's post-drug-addicted America. It's a different kind of moral drama that is happening. The film even shows eventually becomes it's a post-industrial town because the mill burns down. Uh, the story is about an innocent America where it's just going to start feeling the aftershocks of revolution and individualism that has happened since the 60s, plus the breakdown of economic independence that happened with that. Blue Velvet doesn't really have that. It has an extremely eucatastrophic happy ending. And we want the mystery eventually to end. We don't want Frank Booth to continue. We don't want him to come back from the dead because we want the movie to conclude. This is, you know, because of the nature of the medium as a film. Because the television has the serial form, we like I want it to keep going. But that means that there is going to be no happy ending as the series keeps continuing. Because to keep, you know, having one mystery open up another mystery that means we have to find more decrepitude more villainy more corruption more darkness right if you want to keep solving murders there has to be more murders happening that's why like you know in the world of television the most dangerous places are not you know some uh urban gang violence or uh, war in another country it's uh, you know the english countryside or you know some uh, new england seaside town where an, an old woman murder she wrote right there's like 700 deaths in one town in just about 10 15 years and at a certain point you have the fan theories right was she the murderer uh, is she the one behind it all well that's sort of part of the nature of this kind of medium so kyle mclaughlin's character is sort of resolved into the kind of mature future uh, husband and father and family man that he's meant to be living in the small town how he becomes the sort of george bailey happens because he's done sort of solving the mysteries but that kind of happy ending depends upon a certain artifice that we have to kind of just accept you know the dead bird that we see with the robin we have to believe it's we have to take that leap of faith that it's alive even though we can kind of see that it is clearly a mechanical device that has been created from something that has been dead that's sort of the nature of this fantasy, and that's something that we don't see in Twin Peaks, and that's uh, that's continually shown to us that this is not the case. This isn't the fantasy anymore. This is gone. And that's kind of what we see sort of in Lynch's films as time goes on as well, is sort of this disenchantment and the unbelievability of the artifice. Thankfully, in Blue Velvet, at least, we can still believe in it. Yeah, I think you're right with Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks Return. 
story, especially both Carl McLachlan and David Lynch seem to lose their shine. And you could say that the natural moral hopes that are expressed by characters in some of these movies tend to run aground in face of injustices and evils that are simply either unfathomable or uh, impossible to stop. Compared to them, Frank in Blue Velvet is still mortal. It is still vulnerable to somebody like uh, Jeffrey Beaumont. The police can still act to a purpose. So it's, it's I think, especially body. for that reason, Blue Velvet is maybe the best introduction to David Lynch because it shows his concern with moral growth with young Americans becoming adults and therefore facing the moral drama of the nation more clearly than any of the other movies, although perhaps the other ones are more sophisticated and even more interesting, even more accomplished artistically, for example. But we'll take a happy end where we can get it, and Blue Velvet offers that. It changes the Robins from the story to a Robin with a bug in its mouth. It's not quite the same picture anymore. But maybe that's, you could say, the difference between being morally serious and being naive. The Robins cannot be entirely so pure as you might want them. So we will have to let it go at that and leave off until our next Lynch conversation. Ryan, thanks for so much for joining me. I hope this will be as interesting to our audience as the movie, if in a somewhat different way. And I hope people will see how thoughtful an American artist David Lynch is, and that the country is always on his mind, however strange the stories seem. And indeed, it's a matter of trying to teach people to look at what's strange in the country, and also to suggest that we are to some extent strangers to ourselves. We are as human beings surprisingly unsettled, and that's what makes us something to worry about and something to take an interest in. So it gives artists something to do, just as it does politicians and citizens. And until next time, all the best, Ryan. Thank you. To you too, Titus. Thank you.